the New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Guerrilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Spain, and today joined by Francis Valentine. Welcome, Francis. How are you? Good. Kia ora, Paul. Great to see you. Likewise. Uh, it's nice to be able to you know, sit down and have a bit of a, a chat. Uh, In the fa- real world. Face to face. Yeah, it's so good. Um Maybe you can just a little bit of an introduction to those that don't know you, where you fit into this world of of uh, of technology and 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 education. Sure. Um, and then we'll jump in from there. Okay, so this is uh, twenty five years for me have been in education and technology. It's sort of a bit of a segue, well, sort of a, almost a, a, a collision, I guess, of two fields that I love. Technology, I kicked in around the late 80s, early 90s when the tech world was really coming to its own. I was based in London. And then education, I got the bug coming back into Aotearoa a few years later when I realised there was this whole new industries that were starting to emerge and nobody was training for them. And so I decided at that point it was really good to get involved with the creative sector, the creative technologies, with a bit of e-commerce thrown in for good measure in, in the early 90s. And, and into the 2000s. And uh, and these days I am the founder and the CEO of the Mind Lab and Tech Futures Lab here in Tamaki Makoto. Fantastic. Well, I know there's a whole lot more to uh, to that story and you have so much you know recognition uh, for your expertise as an education futurist and you know, lots and lots of awards. Um, so it's a real privilege to you know, get some time to, uh, to share with you today. Um, keen to hear about your new book, um, but first of all, we'll jump into some of the happenings in the in the tech world. Absolutely, um, and uh, let's have a have a little bit of a, a chat uh, around where where things are uh, are going. Um, on the New Zealand uh, front, we see New Zealanders playing this um, this role in you know potentially shaping uh, something of the future of the metaverse. This new Web 3.0 world, the world of uh, um, distributed uh, technology, NFTs, uh, and uh, we've had uh, South by Southwest happening in mm. uh, in the US and in Texas. Uh, and I was looking at um, some coverage from uh, Fortune uh, magazine. Uh, and they they have the, had a, uh, their title was open or closed. A key battle over the metaverse is underway. Uh, that will decide this uh, buzzy technology's future, uh, which was kind of a, a, a fun a fun title. Um, but they've sort of d- delved into uh, you know I guess Mark Zuckerberg and you know Meta slash you know Facebook wanting to to get in and to. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, you know, play a very important role in uh, in in the future of uh, of technology, um, but also they um, they quite quickly um, delved into uh, a quote from uh, Brooke Howard Smith, mm-hmm. uh, non fungible labs and uh, and and uh, and the the, the fluff uh, or fluff world with their uh, their NFTs. Um, and really, he was he was just talking about this ability to you know take these uh, NFTs and things that maybe are in one world and being able to move them around between other worlds, and um, that's where this weekend um, uh, non fungible labs and the varying other uh, partners there have been um, you know pushing uh, this concept of a, a metaverse manifesto and looking to create this interoperability um, piece. Now, from where you sit... Um, yeah, well, I guess, you know, I think that what's amazing right now is is just the number of people I'm sure are sitting here listening going, hang on, back up the track a little bit, we're, we're still back at the metaverse. And I think this is this is the challenge we have, is it's so many things to, to different individuals. You know, for me, within the world of education and connection and networks, I just love this idea that we're going to have these environments which are, you know, the sort of where the virtual world meets the real world and, you know, takes us from this constant looking at each other on Zoom like a bunch of Muppets sitting there at the beginning yeah. of the show to this idea that you would be able to share these spaces and trade in these spaces. And I think that this is where businesses who are not really having their, their eye on the ball about what it looks like for them. Now, what does their physical business or their virtual business look like in the metaverse? And, you know, I think what's going to be interesting is if you look at the, 
at the moment, the acquisition of property in the metaverse. And, you know, do you buy down the street from Snoop Dogg or, or do you kind of wait to see who the next cool location is? And, and is your brand, you know, better suited to sit alongside some other great brands in the metaverse or should you be starting your own sort of virtual world and, and trading and using your NFTs or whatever form of, of digital currency you choose? So I, I think we're at the stage where we don't know who's going to win the race. There's certainly lots of big brands spending hundreds of thousands of dollars acquiring their premises and building these virtual That's kind of right. <laughs> facilities yeah. And, yeah. And, and malls and shops and houses. And, you know, I think it's it's fascinating, but I can see with the likes of even the technologies around VR, AR, and even Google Glasses coming out with 2.0, uh, do, dare we even mention Google Glasses? I'm not sure. But <laughs> <laughs> but the idea is where everybody's fighting to figure out who's going to sit at the table in these new spaces and who gets to trade and, and actually what does that look like? Yeah, and look, there's there's so much still still to figure out, and we you know we can take in all sorts of information, but actually you know predicting the future, well, that's um, you know that there's that opportunity really for each of us to you know participate in, in defining what that future uh, looks like, right? Um, because it's 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 yet to be written. Yeah, and I think the great thing about these major leaps in technology is it's democratised in the beginning because nobody knows who's going to win. It's a bit like the early days of Bitcoin. Those who got in early and took the punt, you know, who won, I guess, in the early stage, if they hung on to them. And then you have the, the, those who come in later who don't do quite so well. But actually, in the end, it's everybody's able to get in when they want to. And so the early adopters, I think, like most technologies, will always be the winners. But they'll also be you know, be part of the first wave and there'll be a second and a third wave and things will change and merge and, and morph. And the technology companies who dominate right now, you know, my my view is unless they're almost reinventing themselves, they're going to be replaced by new emerging technologies who are even smarter and better at these new sort of virtual worlds. Um, you know, clearly Meta with Facebook are, are trying to be domineering and kind of own that space. But then you look at every other tech giant and they're saying the same thing. So, you know, who gets to win and who gets to play is yet to be determined. But I think it's certainly um, an area where every large company in the world should be spending a considerable amount of time just to understand the nuances of why is this coming, who will be playing, and actually what is the demographic of the people who are going to spend a lot of time and money, virtual money, uh, in this this new world. Yeah, and, um, you know, it's, it's quite a challenge, I think, because – the pockets of of knowledge often, and you know, probably the bigger the business is, then the more of a challenge, um, you know, that that often becomes in terms. Of, well, who's got the knowledge? Are, are they are they in a position to you know redirect a, a business? Should a business be sort of redirecting its its thinking? Uh, you know, how and where do you invest? Um, do you throw money at something and look and look silly? Or do you not throw money at something and and, and look, look slow. silly and slow? <laughs> yeah, um, and and but you know even for those that get involved, you know really early. Um, and a few years ago, I, I had the privilege of visiting um, Rochester, New York, which was the home of uh, still is the home of home of Kodak um, and Xerox. And um, I sat down with the inventor of the digital camera, and. You know, Kodak were were right there. You know, they yeah, spent they the money. Them. They they invented the, the and then te- they held the onto it and didn't let it play. And and yeah. they you know they 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 messed it up. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of things have to kind of happen happen right. Uh, you know, for uh, for organisations to uh, you know really secure their their long term. Uh, futures as the world changes, don't they? You know, one of the things that most people don't really uh, focus on enough is the demographic change in the world. That we, we often talk about the age of people uh, are living much longer, but we what we miss is Generation Z is enormous. You know, they're the biggest population in the world right now, and they're fully digital. So, and and they you know they love playing in this new space. They like thinking about the new technologies that inform them and and the you know, the places they like to hang out. And so if you're sitting there as a professional service firm and you're assuming that everybody's going to come walking through your door and sit at your table and, and, and pay for your consultancy fees in five years' time, I mean, you'd be very misinformed. You know, you're going to have another generation who are already in the workforce and, and starting to become quite dominant in the workforce who are saying, well, let, let's meet in a virtual space. You know, let us trade, let us do business, let us exchange value in a very different way. And so this idea of value exchange will also be on the table about it's, it's not money for hours. 
And we're seeing that in the future of work already where people are working very differently. And the idea that you, know, you work nine to five feels a bit foreign now, even after just two years of that big disruption and circuit breaker of COVID. So I, I do think that you will see you know, the new professional service firm will be a brand new one. It won't be the big four that we know. It'll be someone else who comes in and says, we operate in an entirely different way and we are serving a new group of underserved people who will be those under 40, uh, particularly those under 30 who are coming through. And they'll say, you know, we'll trade the way you want to work and we'll work the way you want to work in whatever time zone you want to be in whatever location that you want to work. And I think we're seeing now, even myself, more people saying, hey, I want to keep working with you and working for the organisation, but do you mind if I do that from Bali? And, you know, I think that we're, we're kind of in this very fluid time about how people want to work, and I think more and more of it will happen in this, this virtual space where we don't coexist in the same way. And once you move into a distributed workforce, then moving it online into a virtual, into a metaverse, is just kind of one next step, so much easier to do. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a really exciting time, and you know, I think we look at we look at uh, you know COVID and how it's impacted things, um, you know, and it and it really has you know helped to change the change the thinking because uh, something that otherwise would have taken a, a lot longer a lot in terms longer, of change, yeah. you know change and and yeah. work habits has has really been pushed forward. Yeah, I think that the benefit if there's, if there's a silver lining from COVID is it it enabled people to think about things differently and actually there wasn't time to to test things out and say, well, what happens if we work from home and how do we move into sharing platforms and collaborative tools and how, how are we going to different productivity measures and metrics? It was through necessity. And so once people tried that, it was really by, you know, it was almost by stealth that we did things. And then the surprise aspect was, hey, actually a lot more productivity happened in many cases and actually people adopted technologies would have taken years to go through and adopt and businesses actually had to kind of supersede investment into into new types of platforms and then some had to break the rules completely and say, okay, you know, we are going to allow people to, to work with confidential information through new systems and VPNs and doing different things. So, you know, I think there is no way that uh, the world would have advanced in the way it has and I think while there are two sides to every ledger, a lot more people today have the flexibility they've always desired and are probably looking at a much more flexible future in their workforce and their, their careers. And that you know, can really only be attributed to COVID and the, the actual necessity of you know, pulling off the Band-Aid and looking at things differently. Yeah, uh, it's exciting. Um, now, just looking at, at some other uh, areas where New Zealand's pushing forward, uh, electric ferries. Now, you know, the, we look at our, our electric uh, vehicles and, um, you know, the growth has really been accelerating, you know, on that front, you know, here and globally. And I think with the price of oil, yeah. uh, that, that's probably uh, probably helped a, uh, a lot of people to maybe, you know, reevaluate the equations. Here in New Zealand, of course, there's been a... Um, uh, a subsidy for those buying electric vehicles. I think that subsidy drops um, next month. So the end of um, March, I think it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, but but not too much. So I think we're going to see. Uh, you know, we're going to see a continued movement uh, on that front. And you know, and until the uh, internal combustion engine uh, vehicle is uh, is sort of you know a no rare, a rare <laughs> thing on the. On the roads, I mean, these things take you know take a uh, quite some time to uh, to happen, and it's you know not as though uh, um, you know cars are, are replaced uh, quite as quickly as we do our, our smartphones and, and other gadgets. Certainly within New Zealand, um, I guess some markets like Japan, where they, they don't keep their cars very long at all, mm. um, you know, they probably will tra- transition um, faster. Um, but yeah, the electric uh, ferry. Uh, in Wellington, uh, Wellington Electric uh, Boat Building uh, Company have got their uh, um, uh, their new one um, operating, uh, and is, has done its uh, maiden uh, public sailing, uh, which is is pretty pretty exciting. Oh look, I can't I can't happen fast enough, and I think you know I went over to the Netherlands a few years ago before COVID and did a smart city tour with the government there and the amount of electrification there between you know, buses and trams and boats and autonomous boats that are electric, um, you know, the trains and the buses run, and then there's also electric planes. So, you know, I think we really need to think about it. I have to say I'm, you know, thrilled I drive an electric car and I wouldn't, wouldn't give it up for anything. 
uh, and 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 actually, what it's fascinating for me is when I talk to my graduate students, almost everyone admits if they had the ability, their next purchase for a car would be electric. And I think to your point, with the cost of petrol going up and you know petrol costs almost never come down, um, I think it's going to be the probably the catalyst that, that really changes things if people can afford to. I appreciate there's lots of other considerations around sustainability and what do we do with all these old petrol cars. But I think long term, it's going to be better for the environment. We just uh, probably have to solve the issue around where the batteries, you know, in terms of some of the, the fossil fuels and things we, we need for the batteries. But once I changed a couple of years back to an electric car, like there's, it's certainly no going back. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree on that front. And look, there's all sorts of, you know, options out, you know, firmly bought in a, an electric sort of, you know, moped, the, the, you know, modern equivalent of a Vespa. Awesome. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, it's, it's very, very cool. Um, you know, certainly the the um, you know the EVs have been coming down in price. In fact, I, I looked over the weekend um, at the price of the Tesla uh, Model Three, the the base model, which is you know subsidised at the moment, um, and compared it to the US price, it's actually cheaper to buy in New Zealand right now than it wow, is to buy to know. Uh, in the US. So um, those that have been sitting on the fence and wondering whether to buy, probably the price is going to go up. Would if I had to, I'd say so. If I had to make a prediction on that front. Um, Five to seven months is the delivery wait at the moment. So, um, well, well, actually, I, I do have a Tesla, and I got it two and a half years ago, and I had a three and a half year wait from the time I put the deposit down. Yes, yeah, similar um, boat. And uh, <laughs> yeah, but I have to say, I've also got my deposit down on the Cybertruck for no other reason than I just, you know, just driving a pixel around sounds kind of like <laughs> the next crazy Mad Max world. But um, you know, I think the, you know the reality is you're right. Demand for electric cars, I think, will go through the roof. As I watched on Friday evening, passing three petrol stations on the way home with queues, you know, spilling down the road of people waiting to get petrol, reminiscent of you know going back decades ago where, you know, where petrol prices were ex- sort of going up dramatically. And I think people will start to do the math and start to think about, you know, actually by the time you you do the equation and the subsidies and if that continues in some form, it's a pretty good time to think about it. Yeah, and I'm. Think I mentioned this on the podcast maybe last week or the week before, um, but you know for those that are in a position to do so, you can pre-buy fuel from Z using the Z ah. uh, share share tank app. Um, so a friend that um, um, bought a Tesla uh, after uh, last week um, also messaged me and because he's got a big weight. Uh, said thank you for the advice, I, and he sent me a screenshot. He just bought 550 litres of, uh, of fuel with with Z at the current. So you can hedge it at the current so, price. I think yeah, that's a great advice, yeah. and I think one um, that more people should know about. Yeah, so uh, yeah, rather uh, rather handy. Um, now looking forwards, you know we have this incredible uh, infrastructure in in New Zealand when it comes to. Uh, connectivity, you know, especially with fibre. Um, Cora sent through a press release this morning um, talking about the uh, um, the phase out of copper. Um, so they're they're just now, um, you know, really um, at that stage where there are you know some areas where um, people have, have moved to uh, to uh, fibre um, entirely or very close to it, and they're now. Uh, you know, talking through this uh, this withdrawal of copper, um, which um, I think just something that uh, you know consumers need to be aware of. There has been some messaging coming out from telcos mm-hmm. that's trying to uh, nudge people towards um, uh, fixed wireless you know services over the mobile networks, um, and and and. In my view, some of those communications uh, have been very much sort of self-serving from the the telcos yeah. perspective to move to their, uh, you know, their mobile network because of the lower costs, and it's not always the right thing to do. So if you know, you know, um, family members who will just do whatever they're told by their their telco, uh, might be a chance to have a word to them uh, if you haven't already. Um, poss- probably most of these comms are out you know, now already. Um, but I keep hearing about people sort of putting their hands up and are asking for help or are saying, oh, this happened and, yeah, we were kind of told that, uh, you know, copper was was going. Well, it is, but over quite a long period. And copper is not being removed where there isn't fibre. So right, I think okay. that, that's probably the thing to be aware of. Um, and, and one of the cases I was alerted to recently was somebody out in a rural location where it was, 
you know, their telco was moving them from copper uh, to a fixed wireless service and actually their speed was going to, you know, de- degrade with that particular change. Now, hopefully that's, a, that's an exception to the rule um, because, look, there are certainly are cases where it absolutely makes sense to go to uh, fixed wireless service. Um, my, my father's in a you know, retirement home. Um, and he's just gone gone through that uh, that change, um, and uh, I think after uh, he got onto his his third uh, router, a uh, couple of visits to the local Vodafone store, <laughs> uh, he's eventually got something that's that works, that works and is operating. Um, and for his internet usage, yeah, absolutely, that's that's probably the right thing to do. Um, but not every case will be like yeah, that. Yeah, and I think it's a point. I mean. Um, I had, up until last year, a, a property in, in Waitakere in West Auckland, and it's only 35 kilometres from the city, but I couldn't get mobile there at all, and I could on, only get basic, you know, VDSL at best uh, for internet, one of the reasons that I'm not there, not there anymore. <laughs> but, you know, if they had taken it away then, um, the connection put me onto mobile, I would have had no coverage at all, and there was no intention of, of putting coverage in that valley. Mm. So I'm not sure how those sorts of pockets, even within cities, would cope. Interesting enough, at home, and, and this is, sounds a bit of a plug for another Elon product, but I have Starlink, um, and, and that's partially as a, as a backup. I spend all day in my business running online. I spend a lot of that time from home. Yeah. So I have two, I have fibre and Starlink. And, um, and you know, I think we, you know, we will see more and more technologies which are satellite-based, and we'll start to see external parties, and it will get more and more competitive. And you know, So I think you and I, you know, we spend all our time in technology and seeing where, where things are going. We need to test them and... and and I see some real benefits from having a more competitive market than just the big telcos. Yeah, look, it, it's really interesting to uh, you know ha- have spent time trying out Starlink and to see. Well, you know, most of the time it's pretty good. It do, you know will have its its glitches and so on, um, but it does it puts some good you know pressure on our telcos. Uh, I I guess I you know I like to see as much as as possible. You know, happening locally, so the money's going course, back into, into our economy. Um, but there, there's not likely to be any kind of local equivalent uh, to, uh, to Starlink anytime soon. Um, there will be some competition for Starlink as, as the other players come through uh, with their offerings in the market. But, um, yeah, we have a, a very interesting, you know, time ahead in, in terms of telecommunications and, you know, New Zealand is one of the best places to live, you know, Absolutely. In, in the world great because of what great infrastructure and, yeah. we've got. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, Starlink is, is here reasonably early compared to uh, some other places. And so really it doesn't matter where you are in the country. Um, you know, thing. you've got some pretty good options probably right now. And by the end of, of you know, what we see, the, the you know, there's still a little bit more to go on the uh, the next stage of, of, or the current stage of the fibre rollout and uh um, rural broadband, um, you know, just just gets better. So it's yeah, great. and actually just going back to Starlink, I have a staff member, for example, who couldn't get anything more than really a dial-up speed mm. out south. And, you know, we, it was a no-brainer for us as a company to say, okay, get Starlink and get that installed. And her life changed. Her kid's life changed. You know, she, when she went to lockdown, we had to figure out a solution because she couldn't come to the city. And it enabled her and her children to, to learn remotely. And, and it was really was, you know, a, a game changer for them in a time when there wasn't an alternative. And like you, if there was an option locally, I'd t- certainly take it. But um, it's all it's always about directionally where things are going and making sure we look at the options. And hopefully businesses will come in behind and say, hey, there's a real market opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, yeah, it is interesting uh, that I think it's maybe it's Japan where, you know, Starlink has a, you know, they've got a local um Partnership there rather than um, rather than selling direct, but I'm not aware of that happening sort of anywhere else in the world. Um, but yeah, as we've seen with with Tesla, there's some there's some real upsides to a, a direct business model. Um, there's probably some some downsides too in terms sure. of local uh, throats to choke, as they uh, <laughs> as, as they say. Um, but uh, you know, in in general, I think this is this is the nature of you know uh, the way. Uh, tech is, is, you know, is changing the world. And so, you know, we see various, uh, you know, parts of the the supply chain and distribution chain sort of uh, evaporate. And, uh, yeah, I think what I like about when you've got, you know, those, whether local or global, who are really leading from the edge, it gives a direction for others to follow. You know, we, we need to know what shining stars we're chasing in terms of 
democratizing access and you know, internet access needs to be for everyone. It can't just be for those who can afford it. And you know, everything I see in tech always starts with the very wealthy in the beginning, and then it, you know the trickle down effect. You know, the, the first Tesla that came out were well outside the average person's price range. In, in fact, the first two, and it wasn't really till they got to the, the Model Three. Um, that actually more people could start to see that it was comparable to a new car, uh, you know, a petrol car. Mm. And I think mm. we'll see the same thing with, you know, with access to other forms of energy and solar will be another one. Um, you know, as we start to think about electric vehicles and even even cycles, all those things will start to change. And I think a lot of it's going to come back to internet connectivity as it, as it becomes more accessible for all. And I keep thinking it wasn't that long ago I lived rurally um, and I was using a... a, a a service, a local service, and I got eight gigabytes a month for a family of four. And it was an extraordinary, it was hundreds of dollars per month. And we literally watched every single download. And, uh, you know, it was like a day by day just trying to make sure we didn't tip over because the cost we went over was just so prohibitive. Mm. So it wasn't, you know, maybe it was 14 years ago, but it was just extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, things just changed so, so quickly. Now, we'd like to talk about from time to time, this future vision of autonomous vehicles and and self-driving cars. So um, it did catch my uh, attention uh, over the weekend seeing that um, in the US, the uh, National Highway uh, Traffic Safety Administration um, are opening the the door uh, to this next phase of vehicles that will operate, um, you know, without the sort of manual controls like mm-hmm. a steering wheel and so on Great. That, we're, uh, that we're used to. So these things are, are starting to uh, to come through um, and, you know, basically new rules coming into play um, for this world of, of autonomous uh, autonomous vehicles, uh, which is, is, you know, I think, um, you know, pretty exciting to see it uh, progressing and we won't, you know, we don't really have time to sort of delve too much into uh, you know the, all the realities of of that, but also um, Japan um, either has now introduced or is or it's uh, it's going through uh, the process with the government there uh, new le- new legislation that sets a um, framework for fully autonomous cars uh, on the roads in in Japan as well, um, and of course there are lots of other markets where there have been you know, varying bits and pieces of, of legislation or, or moves forward. But, um, you know, we look at Japan and, and the US are, are pretty influential when they it are, comes yeah. to uh, I think the uh, other place vehicles and, and China, which, you know, um, are moving forward pretty quickly on, on autonomous, right? Although I think the one that's probably most advanced right now is Dubai with their autonomous taxi fleet, which they're rolling out right now. And by the end of the year, they expect, I think it's half the taxis within Dubai to be autonomous. And that is, again, without sort of level three, level four, mm. without the steering wheel, without having sort of the dummy person in the front seat holding, you know, holding fort. Um so I think you know there are some definite markets right now where they're seeing the benefits. And again, if if the price of petrol keeps going up, having access to mobility is going to be more important than having mobility yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's where having the benefit of autonomous vehicles coming to your house, picking you up, and keep moving, and so that you know less potentially less cars on the road. It's going to take a while to get to that benefit, but I think it's a good time for you know these indicators of change that we're seeing around the world have been spurred by some of the world events that we're seeing right now. Yeah, ah, it's really uh, it's really exciting times. Uh, and Apple made their big announcements last week um, that it were you know somewhat somewhat um, available up front. There's always a little bit of uh, uh, leakage, shall we say, when it comes to Apple uh, Apple announcements. Um, but their M1 chips that they've been you know slowly rolling out uh, across their uh, devices just seem to be getting. Uh, more and more uh, powerful. So, um, yeah, pretty interesting to uh, to see this uh, M1 chip, which is their, yeah. you know, their top uh, fastest chip. And you know, I've seen it referenced as the, you know, basically the fastest, you know, computer chip available. Um, there are obviously varying ways you can measure that and 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 view that. Um, but uh, yeah, the new uh, the new Macs are uh, are, are looking uh, looking pretty slick and pretty fast. Um, and even the um, the new iPhone announcement, which is their SE, which is their their lowest cost uh, 
phone. Um, I I like the way that Apple releases those phones and that it's it's a you know the most affordable iPhone, but it's not using you know one two three four you know five year old technology. It's actually got the same the latest, yeah. uh, chip in it as their iPhone uh, thirteen. So in terms of those that are you know, looking across their organisation, and uh, you know, I know we we have these these discussions within you know my own uh, clients and organisations of well, what's the what's the most secure uh, phone, um, and you know, in some organisations, there's very much the feeling that you know, going going with the Apple product and the the pace at which the updates, security updates, and so on come through come through, um, yeah, creates this this. Uh, desire to uh, give people an iPhone, but there's been a real premium. So uh, this makes that more accessible if a uh, workforce wants to push those out. And I think it's the same if we're just talking about with Teslas. I mean, Apple is smart. The world population is growing. It's growing you know, at the bottom end in terms of age. It's new emerging markets, places like Africa and the Middle East, and they need a product to get into market for market share. And, and to your point, you know, the, using the latest technology is, is definitely the way to go. They want to showcase the best. They want to take on their market share in that way. And you know, I imagine chip makers like Intel right now are, are sitting back saying, "What did we miss? You know, how is it that we were, you know, the golden child for so long, and then suddenly out of nowhere, you know, basically the supply chain got reversed and they're creating their own own chips." And and I think we'll see more of this as people in large tech companies start to realise that if they can have the market share in all parts of the market, but if we can make it more affordable, more accessible and more equitable, then actually they're going to be better for it because pricing and just the constant replacement of phones is not a behaviour we're seeing in Gen Z. They don't want you know, the throwaway economy. They don't want to keep replacing. They want to be able to fix and maintain and keep technology for longer. That's the benefit of software. Yeah. So, you know, I think they've probably been playing a, a smart game and hopefully others will follow and actually make it so that we have great technology that lasts longer and actually the benefit is the software that we get, the upgrades, um, and, and not so much looking at the hardware changes. Yeah. And when I, when I look at companies like Apple and Tesla and you know there are so many, so many others, and I guess they're, they're examples where, where it's really elevate, uh, really you know obvious. Um, you know we see that that futurist thinking just goes back over a long oh. period of time. For Apple to be in this position that they are today, you know, I don't know how many years it, it goes back. You know when they certainly you know they they you know acquired a um, you know a chip company, and you know they've done all these things over. You know, it's a long period for Tesla to be where Tesla are today. Absolutely. Um, you know, a lot of futurist thinking over a, over a long period of time. And, you know, it's really essential that we have that thinking inside our organisations and that, you know, we, we, we can, you know, we continue to, um, you know, have that futurist focus, um, which probably brings us to talking about uh, what's happening in, in your world, Francis. Yeah, um, look, yeah, look, and I think it's interesting, you know, People often talk about things like AR and VR and 3D printing and and even like companies like Netflix. You know, they've all been around for more than 25 years. Mm-hmm. The, these are not just overnight successes. And we often, it's by the time that the consumer first experiences some of these things, they feel like it's the, like, where did this come from? I remember when Pokemon Go came out a few years ago and people were like, wow, AR, this new technology. And, and I was thinking back to the University of Canterbury back in the late 90s when they had the Human Interface Technology Laboratory, or HitLab, doing AR way back then, running off a million-dollar computer. Um, you know, what changes is the cost of you know, processing changes and the cost of storage changes. And, you know, for me in my career, it's always been looking at the, the types of technologies and software and behaviours that change the way we think about work and, and jobs. And so which led me to this intersection between technology and education and right now I'm seeing that it's speeding up at a rate that's just quite extraordinary. You know, we talk about exponential and Moore's law and the, you know, the law of accelerating return, and, but actually right now we can see it. You know, things are shifting so rapidly. So we have a bunch of people who are in the mid-career, mid-tier managers, executives, board members, who if they haven't got their eye really closely on the, on the, on the ground and listening really closely to a good advice, they could miss entirely kind of big shifts of change and their competitors are going to have a huge advantage over what they're doing. And it's a bit of a watch-out time for a lot of people. Yeah, and uh, yeah, really every 
every sector is impacted, isn't it? And every, I think yeah. there's that, um, you know, often that sort of assumption, you sort of look at, oh, yeah, okay, well, that's okay there with taxis and Uber or, you know, what have you. But, um, you know, we we probably aren't always very good at um, at, at picking that, uh, the, the, you know, our own fields are going to be impacted um, in in all sorts of ways, and we've you know we've got to be putting on that futurist hat. And uh, you know, as I like to say, we all need to be futurists. We all have to have that futurist mindset and and be looking out you know further than probably what we what we ever you know have done in the past. Anyway, on to um, on to your book, um, which was launched last week. What was can, yeah. What can you tell us? So future you. Um, not surprising, the title, I guess, you know, a, a book written for basically for professionals who uh, are looking into the future saying, how much of this do I really need to know? Do I really have to reskill? Uh, can't I leave this for someone else to do? And also using just, you know, lots of case studies or situations where I've looked at, you know, I've taught over the years, you know, well over, you know, I don't know, 10, 15,000 uh, students who are all adults, so the average age of our students right now is 42, um, and also on platforms where I've taught tens of thousands of, of adults. And you know the characteristics of those who lean into change and the characteristics of those who are, are really quite intimidated by them can be quite profound and, and actually career damaging if, if people are just sort of like, I can trade on what I know because actually it served me well. And I think Future You was written with this idea that we can all be anyone we want to be. There isn't an age where you can't learn. Um, the only thing that stops people learning and advancing and getting comprehension of new changes is a mindset and time. And, you know, I do, I do find it fascinating that a lot of people self-destruct kind of their own potential because they get to a certain age and say, oh, look, I, you know, I can't do them too old. Or you know somebody in their mid forties said, "Oh, my kids will set things up on the computer, and I don't really understand." And you know my work have changed some of the software, so I'm you know, I'm not very happy about it. And actually, if they leant into it and actually embraced it, their career has so much more potential. The other part of Future You is we're living longer. You know we we you know three scores plus ten, which was the old saying around we live to be seventy. You know, not many people die at 70 these days. In fact, it's really only those with underlying conditions. Most of us would expect to live well into our 90s, and that would be statistically backed up. And, of course, our children will live even longer. So this idea that we, our careers will finish at 65 if we live to be closer to 100, what do we do for those 35 years if we haven't stayed kind of, you know, able to be able to adapt and adopt new technologies? And so that's one big challenge I focus on. But the other one is... What happens between, say, 45 and 65 if you haven't kept up to date and you're, you lose your job? You know, if you're 50 and suddenly you found yourself made redundant, what job can you apply for that's going to give you the, you know, the benefit of the experience and you're, you're advancing your older years you know, to, to carry on? And I think there's going to be a lot more people in their 50s find themselves unemployable. And I think it's a very harsh reality that people have to understand that today when you're hiring, you're hiring for the skills you need today. And if you took a typical person and said, find your job on a job board in Silicon Valley and tell me if you could do the same job, same title, read the description, tell me if you could do what they're asking you to do. You know, almost no one says, oh, yeah, I could do that. You know, the face, a, the drain colour of their face, they look at it and say, I literally don't even understand what they're asking, all the software they're saying are required, yeah. or the terminology or the language, you know, it's, it's pretty confronting. And we're only just behind that. You know, give us two or three years, those same jobs are going to be, you know, the jobs that we see here. And, you know, people will actually, if they don't keep ahead of those changes, will find it very difficult um, to step into those jobs. Yeah, and there, there's a broader impact, isn't there? Because if, as individuals, we... Uh, don't start making these these changes and in, in our mindset in terms of how we educate ourselves and keep ourselves up to date. Then you know there's a there's a much bigger flow on to you know the success of of our own you know families and you know ultimately as a as a nation our success if we you know if we push ourselves ahead and we you know we all uh, put on that futurist that hat and and um, you know, we're looking forward to making those decisions, and that has a tremendous, uh, you know, flow on for for New Zealand. But Huge. at the other end, if we 
if we don't get that, we don't bring those changes about, then you know the challenges that we have as a as a nation, as a society, and in all sorts of different areas, then you know we're going to get stuck with those those same problems getting bigger rather than us moving ahead, which is, is where we want to be, isn't it? Yeah, and I think the understanding that the knowledge economy is where directionally we need to be heading. We need to be trading a lot more in our knowledge and expertise. And, you know, forgive me, but you and I are not, we're not spring chickens. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure you get this as well, and people say to me, but how do you know all this stuff? You know, how do you, how does this conversation, and, and it's sort of almost like some osmosis that we just walk through knowledge and it just sort of lands in our brains. You know, you, you keep active, you keep reading, you, you pick yeah. up authentic, reliable source information, you have really great discussions with friends and networks. You know, it's those things that keep us informed. You know, it's not about just, you know, hiding from those conversations. And, you know, I do think it's a, a big difference of, you know, that's sort of the ultimate dinner party when you've got a whole bunch of people who've got a vast array of different knowledge and you can sort of share and bounce off each other versus people who haven't had that and they've got, you know, they talk about the kids' sport and the weather last weekend and when are we going to go to the Papua again? <laughs> you know, I think we have to surround ourselves with people who don't just think like us and who can inject, you know, new topics into a conversation where you go, whoa, whoa, what, what are you talking about? What, what is that thing you just talked I've never heard of that before. And, and so for me... That's where life gets interesting, as, as you get people who are, are reading or sharing ideas and listening to great, great, you know, great podcasts and saying, okay, there's a few things in that, in that podcast which I'm going to write down and I'm going to research and then I'm going to have a conversation with my team or my kids and actually start to understand that better. And so going back to the book, that's really what it's about. It's saying, you know, this is something that we can all do. And, and for part of it, for me, it was saying yes to every opportunity I could. And I started at the age of 35. I just decided... What was there to lose if people asked me to do something, even if it was terrifying and, and I didn't understand it, I'd just say yes. And and actually going forward, you know, it's really served me well. And uh, and by the time I hit 50 last year, it was sort of like, hey, actually this, you know, I feel like I'm just starting this escalation of like so much exciting things ahead of me and, and, and ahead of my, my children's world as well that I want to be part of. And really I, I see that the more you embed yourself in this environment of just great topics and really interesting things that are happening in the world, the more doors open and the more conversations that happen. And it kind of has this really amplifying effect that you get to be involved with more great conversations and the world just kind of opens right, right across, you know, everything opens up. Yeah. Oh, that's, um, this is a great discussion. Um, tell us a little bit about the Mind Lab and Tech Futures Lab. Um, obviously, encourage everyone to go out and get the book, however you can <laughs> Is there an audio book version? Or Not yet, coming? but there is um, a Kindle version, and there yeah. is, I don't even know how audio books, so HarperCollins are my, my publishers, and I'm okay. not sure how that works, but it's available, you know, in all good bookstores. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Audiobooks NZ, they're uh, friends of ours. Oh, good, so, good, uh, good. I'll have to talk to them. Talk, talk, to, uh, talk to Theo. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm keen to understand, you know, a little bit. You, you mentioned before around sort of the – uh, the average age of those going through your programs was at forty two. Forty two, yeah, um, which is is really really encouraging. Yeah, um, so I have every year around fourteen hundred postgraduate students. We, we we only teach at postgraduate level, so um, so everybody's coming in with you know a bit of history behind them, uh, and then we'd also have online learning as well. And one platform in particular called Digital Boost, which has forty five thousand business owners who are learning to digitise through their support through MB, who are um, sponsoring that that platform. But the main students coming through are mid-career and one of four things have typically happened. Uh, it's either they've had a, a really great job opportunity passed by them and someone else has been promoted above them and they've been suddenly like, how did that happen? Or they've been made redundant from their job. Or they've lost a really important family member and often it's a parent. Or they've suddenly sat down and looked at their kids and realised their kids are experiencing a world they don't really understand. So one of those catalysts is often the kind of the moment in time where our students come in and go, you know what, it's time for me to get back into learning and actually understand, you know, where things are going. And it's a real privilege to teach adults. They're all part-time, so they're all pretty much employed. Um, and the Mind Lab and Tech Futures Lab are, are both um, organisations that are basically sort of sister, sister organisations. And um, we've been in... You know, really sort of dominantly playing in that postgraduate professional development space for the last nearly nine years. 
And, and in fact, just last week when the book came out, it was also the same week that we had uh, a 50% investment of, of you know, shareholding into the business from a fund called the Equity Impact Fund out of Sydney. So a big week last week. So um, Congratulations. Yeah, and look, it's a really lovely next step for a, a fund that recognises impact and sustainability, but also about the what what is needed in the world of education. And so for this particular Sydney-based fund, it's the first time that they have invested in a New Zealand organisation and certainly the first time in professional development or higher education. So sort of for them, it's a step in, uh, into a new direction. But what's happened with COVID is the amount of adults who are learning right now globally has just soared, you know, it's just surged ahead. It's just suddenly all these online platforms, we've taken some of the best institutes in the world have opened their doors online and allowed students to come in. So it's not that geographic you have to have or have to be somewhere and what's you know what's happened is we've watched our children learn online. Adults have started going on getting on board, and and I really think that this is the generation where we're going to see a lot more people saying you know lifelong learning. We've heard the phrase for a long time. This is actually going to be the reality of lifelong learning that people will keep investing every few years. It might be a sabbatical. It might be alongside their work. It might be a deal they do with their boss to have a few hours off every week. But I I do think we stand to understand that knowledge is not for life. Actually, it needs to be replaced. It's like, you know, I actually even refer in my book about being a bit like a phone. The day you get your phone, it's a, it's a depreciating asset if they don't get new software, if you're not getting new apps. And so when you hire a person, the day you hire them, they are a self-depreciating asset if they're not learning. You know, so they're actually going backwards. Yeah, yeah. So you need to be investing in people from the day that they start working for Absolutely. you. And then actually, you know, they can work for you as long. And, you know, they can be there 10, 20 years if they keep learning. But if they have sort of like, okay, everything I ever needed to learn, I already know, then you probably don't want to hold on to them forever <laughs> because actually you're not going to get that real value. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's exciting. And um, are you are you seeing um, or are you open to international students? Is there a future that's, that's a little bit more than just, uh, you know, New Zealand? Yeah, so one of the things we did change during COVID is we went through the whole accreditation process again for international students. So we haven't started as of yet, but that is definitely on once borders open. But we can also now teach every all of our programs fully online. So all our master's programs can be taught fully online. And, you know, we've got flagship programs like the Master of Technological um, Futures, which is kind of a catch-all for all the things we've talked about today for, you know, for people who want to understand the future. And they could be from, an, you know, an agri background, they could be from a logistics background, and they could be from almost any background. It's this idea of where are the technologies of the future going to take us. And I do think, you know, one of the things you were talking before around it's all sectors. You know, I was thinking about logistics. Within, within the country, you know, normally delivery is either free or it might be $5.00. You know, that is a huge cost for a business. The last mile delivery in this country is unbelievably expensive. And so it's, it's, a, it's a hit for every time they do that delivery. You know, people don't want you to deliver to you. They want you to come and pick up. But actually, the one company who comes in and figures that one out and actually can you know, figure out how you get last mile delivery yeah. to, you know, to a consumer quickly then you know, they are going to dominate that market. And, and it, you know, it could be the Costco who's coming into New Zealand or the IKEA, or it could be a completely new entrance who just takes on that role. But I know, you know, you know within every vertical, there are challenges that people are trying to solve, and technology it already exists to solve those problems. It's just a matter of when and how to implement those changes. Yeah, and, and you know, we want to see you know, Kiwis having those ideas and the ability to execute them. So, you know, as much as we can, it's Absolutely. not the offshore player that's coming in and, you know, um, just disrupting all of our all of our local entities. Much better if we're, you know, coming up with those things and, and you know, our, our um, local businesses are, are able to do well and to thrive with global competition and even better to be taking and exporting some of these innovations and technologies globally like we've, we've seen in so, you know, so many fields and we need, just need more of that, don't we? Yeah, for me, that would be the dream, is that innovation becomes a really high priority from government down, from policy down, you know, the re-education of the workforce and the reskilling to you know, pre prepare them for the future. So we don't have so many people who are studying hospitality and tourism or industries you're paid by the hour. You know, we need high-value people thinking about creating value. And to your point, there are a number of 
really large global players entering this market. They see the potential here. They see that we've got sort of all the, the, the pieces to make great success, but they're not local businesses. Mm. And so, you know, I would love to see that. But the problem I think we still have is we don't value this idea of learning. You know, we have the lowest participation in professional development in the OECD. Uh, on average, if you look at the Education Council website, which is a government website that talks, talks about numbers, just 2% of men and 4% of women over 40 study anything in any given year. Like it's a very, very low number of people who are actively out there doing things. So I think if we shift that we'll, and we commit more into learning and innovation and experimentation and you know, we, we look at the likes of what Callahan Innovation are doing to just kind of look at research and development and nurturing and supporting growth and then we could be a very different and a very kind of, you know, uh, the, f- the future of our economy could be completely changed and that would include supporting Māori and Pacific businesses and the economy. But right now we need to actually understand the value. We're not pushing enough around innovation and creativity that we need to take on some of these international players. 100% right. Um, thanks, Francis. It's been, it's been great to chat. Now, um, those that are interested in uh, the book, Future You, um, that's that's out there everywhere. It's out Very there. Easy you to can get your hands yep, on. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Excellent. Um, and where do they get in touch if they, uh, you know, are, are interested in fur- folks interested in furthering their education or connecting with you in some way? Sure. So, um, so we have two different uh, institutes: Tech Futures Lab, typically more for people who work in for-profit businesses, so corporate large businesses. The Mind Lab, who people who work more in uh, in things like social development, education, and health, uh, both uh, you know both available under the Tech Futures Lab or Mind Lab online. If you want to reach out with to me, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, strange spelling, Francis with an E, Valentine with an I V A L I N T I N E. Love to hear from you. Um, and if you do manage to read the book and love your feedback, good or bad, uh, it's always good to know what people are thinking in the market. Great. Well, thanks very much for joining us and uh, thanks everybody for listening in uh, to the New Zealand Tech Podcast this week. Uh, Big thank you to our show partners who uh, make NZ Tech Podcast possible um, and for their support of the technology and innovation uh, ecosystems here in New Zealand. So thanks to Gorilla Technology, uh, Vodafone, Vocus, HP and Spark. All right, catch you next week. Cheers. The New Zealand Tech Podcast. Brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.